be looking again this morning at First uh, John chapter 3, uh, so you can search out that little letter once again. <clears throat> Professor Carl Truman of Grove City College wrote one of the more interesting books in the area of Christian thought published in uh, the year of our Lord 2020. He titled his work, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And it reflects his interest in a study of history uh, from a biblical perspective. Uh, given that it consists mainly in a historical consideration of how modern, now postmodern culture has arrived at its present self-obsessed state, it's not a particularly happy read, uh, though it is a book that can be read with profit. Perhaps the key point of the rise and triumph of the modern self that uh, Truman makes is, is that current culture is dominated by a view of human beings uh, that, is, that is primarily psychological and inward focused. Uh, the Canadian philosopher uh, says that this has led to something that he calls expressive individualism, expressive individualism, and he identifies that as saying that people find their meaning, find their meaning not out there somewhere, but in the individual discovery and expression of their inner desires and feelings. Hence, you can see the psychological and the inward focus characteristics there. Now, I'm sure that you, know, you could come up with a hundred illustrations of that from, uh, from our self-focused consumer mentality to uh, all kinds of books that are popular today and slogans that uh, things like be all that you can be or lose your inhibitions, free yourself, affirm yourself, express yourself, love yourself. Just take anything and put it in front of self here and you've got our current culture in some ways. Uh, now, I would say that though it really seems that this kind, this way of thinking is perhaps more widespread than, than we've seen it in recent centuries today, still it's not really anything new. It's not really new at all, this idea of discovering and expressing what one has inside oneself. I mean, we see it from the very beginning, right? And Adam wants to express himself. Okay? He, he wants to give expression to his potential as a being. After all, Satan has said, you can be like God. Okay? You can go to a higher level of being here. You can, you can make your own decisions about what is right and wrong. Uh, we see it in, in Cain, right? Remember that episode where he kills his brother and God you know, comes and confronts him over that? And you remember the, the well-remembered response from Cain? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, as a matter of fact, that word keeper that he uses was, was actually part of the original commission given to Adam to keep and to guard the garden. Indeed, he was. 
made to be a keeper, to be a guarder of others. I mean, that's the essence of the biblical morality, that we have an accountability to look out for one another. There all kinds of other examples could be given. The Tower of Babel, remember the rationale behind that. Uh, they didn't want to obey the Lord's command to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish the earth, to, to spread over the earth. They said, no, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And indeed, I mean, this, this idea of expressive individualism is exactly what we see in, in, in biblical uh, pictures of the fall of Lucifer, of the fall of Satan. Isaiah chapter 14, speaking metaphorically here to Satan, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So really what we're talking about is sin. Right? We live in a culture dominated by this attitude, this, this sinful attitude that would say it's all about us. And we as believers have to be on guard against that as well. And so the Apostle John and to believers in his day, and we believe under the inspiration of the Spirit to us today, has been helping us to think about these things and to and to make sure that our lives are not not dominated by this turned inward focus, but rather rather focused on God. And indeed, uh, last Lord's Day, we saw that, that beautiful picture that, that God gives us. And what is, in a sense, a parenthetical thought there at the beginning of the first three verses of, of chapter 3. As he, as he had us today, at the incredible love of God that, that made us his children. Remember that passage? see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. He, he's, he's calling our attention to our identity. Okay, not self-constructed identity. The one that's given us by God. Well, he, he ended that parenthetical thought with, with sort of a look at the, the life of one who is a child of God. What, what does it look like for someone to be living out their identity as a child of God? He says there in verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him, who hopes in the promise of God, that he has been made his child and will one day be fully like him, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's what it looks like. And in some ways, even though that's a parenthetical thought, that sort of reflects the main theme of the whole letter. And so let me just take a, a few minutes to remind us of that theme by briefly surveying what, what John has written in this short little letter up to this point. Remember at the beginning of the letter, 
he reminded his readers that his theme is the word of life that is in Christ that brings sinners saved by grace into harmony and peace with God and with one another. Remember his emphasis on fellowship there. He wants you to have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. And fellowship is, is a little bit weak uh, translation there. We don't have a, a word that, that really conveys very effectively the Greek word here, which is koinonia, uh, because it, it implies a very deep relationship close connection, a oneness of heart and mind. And, and so John's saying, I, I want that for you. And, and he, reminded, he reminded us that his purpose in writing was, was joy. We are writing these things so that our joy, and some, trans, some uh, manuscripts have there, your joy may be complete. In John's mind, there wouldn't be a great distinction between those two because the joy of the people of God is something they have together. And so his purpose in writing, that the purpose God has for you in this letter is joy. I sort of sort of wonder if maybe John was thinking of Psalm 1611 when he wrote that. You make me to know, pardon me, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who wouldn't want that? wouldn't want the joy that, that John wants for you, wants for all believers here. Anybody in their right mind wants joy. Right? And yet, maybe today, what you need to do is set aside those, those attempts at the fleeting kinds of happiness that this world offers. Those, those earthly delights which begin to fade as soon as we get them. Maybe, maybe, maybe God is calling you to look for a joy beyond that. A joy inexpressible. A joy that is hopeful. Well, John believes that you can find that joy by faith. Because God promises that joy to his people. John wouldn't be wanting this for you if it wasn't a promise of God. He believes you're destined for joy. Everlasting joy. Pleasures forevermore. He believes that's your destiny if you're a child of God. And so, and so don't you want to be heading in that direction? Don't you want to be getting some foretaste of that joy at the time? Those come by faith. And so he talked to us about walking in the light, which is, of course, a metaphor for walking in God. The, the way to this joy is to walk in God, walk in the light. And this included, he's told us there in the first chapter, a lifestyle confession of sin and cleansing from unrighteousness. You see that in verses 7 through 10 of the first chapter. How do you get this joy? John says, well, you, you be quick to, to repent. That, that's one way to begin to experience.
spirits destroy you. You're quick to confess and you receive that joy of forgiveness. Um, he encourages you that as you resist sin, remember he says at the beginning of chapter 2, I'm writing this so you don't sin. You know, I want that for you. It's It would be my delight that you not sin, he's saying, and to encourage us in that, he says, he goes on to say right after that, you have an advocate when you do sin. Do you remember how I juxtaposed those? I don't want you to sin. You shouldn't want to sin. But the encouragement for that is not pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's not It's not gritting your teeth and trying harder. It's remembering you have an advocate. Somebody's got your back when you sin. Isn't that an interesting, interesting way that he's combined those thoughts there? We'd almost... We almost think the opposite. But he says, I want you to remember, as you set your mind to resist sin, I want you to remember you've got an advocate when you fall, when you sin. And you will, he says, if anybody says they don't ever sin, they're blind. When you sin, you've got an advocate. And that advocate is none other than Jesus Christ, the one who bore the penalty for your sin. Be encouraged, he tells us. That's what he, he, he wants for us. He, he wants us to he wants us to experience this this walking in the light that that includes confession confession of sin, but in a, on the positive side, then is characterized by an obedience to God, and the essence of that obedience. Remember, he tells us it, it, the, the essence of that obedience is to love. Remember, that's the way Jesus summed up the law. And so the essence of the life that is lived, walking with God, is, a, is, is to love God and love others. And that's what John wants for you. That's the way to joy. Now, a secondary concern of his letter, as we've seen, is that some people have been trying to mess things up for this, the people that he's writing to. There have been some deceivers out there. And so a secondary concern of his letters is to rebuke those deceivers, to expose that false teaching and, and reaffirm that positive teaching that he, he's given us. He's saying these, these people have, are, are, are bringing you teaching that, that will not lead to joy. In fact, it will lead to destruction. It will lead to total catastrophe. And that's because it's not of Christ, and in fact, it is so not of Christ that he says it is anti-Christ. Remember, you said that. It's teaching against Christ, and so he calls people that, that give this kind of teaching anti-Christ. And so he tells, the, tells us in chapter 2, he tells the people he's writing to in chapter 2, now remember, you've got the truth. Okay, if you've heard the gospel... You've got the truth. Just remind yourself of that truth. Stay in that truth. Don't be led astray by somebody that says, you know, I've got something extra here. I've got a, I've got a higher level of plane of existence as a Christian might be. Just remember that truth. And so he concluded in chapter 2 with 
with uh, coming back to that, that image of the life of one who has been anointed, one who has been born again. And notice how he summed it up there in verse 29. As his anointing teaches you, oops, excuse me, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That's what John wants for you. He wants for you a life of practicing righteousness. And then came that parenthetical thought. It's like, you know, his mention of being born again just reminded him, and he, he had to... He had to rejoice in the fact that we're born again, that we're made children of God. But now in our text today, in verse 4, he's really going to continue the same thought that he had there in verse 49. Okay? And in our text, we're going to see a contrast between that, the life of practicing righteousness, the life of one who's walking in the life, and the wrong teaching that he's teaching against. Sometimes the, it's a very effective tool to tell you what's wrong as well as telling you what's right. And that's what he's going to do here. So really in our text in verse 4, and I'll read down through verse 10, he's picking up the thought in verse 29. So it's almost like verse 29 is part of this thought, but we're going to pick up for our reading at verse 4 and read through verse 10. So hear this uh, then today as, as the Lord's word to you. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. So in our text here, you, you see the movement of John's thought here as he's juxtaposing these two, two contrasting ways of living. He sort of goes from, back from one to the other, but, but you can see there's really just two options here. In fact, one way to study this text would be to, to take the negative comments that he makes there and, and then the positive comments and set them opposed to one another. He wants us to, to catch that as we go through here. So he begins then with returning to what he said in verse 29 of chapter 2, and now he states the opposite of righteous living. Okay, so there's the righteous living at the end of chapter 2, now in verse 4. Remember, he's, he's writing this letter in part in response to false teachers, and so he wants to identify that that false teaching. And so he's writing in verse 4 about people that are not the same as those in verse 3. Okay, look at verse 3, that parenthetical thought. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Okay, here's the opposite of that. 
to verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Now, there's all those in one category, there's all those in the other categories. The same, same word is used, by the way, in, in the Greek, both in verse 3, where it says everyone or all, some translations have, and verse 4, which begins everyone or all. That's the same word in Greek. I think he's purposely doing that, so we see there are these two groups. There's no middle group. He doesn't offer a third option. You're either in one or the other. You're either in one or the other. And so the all or everyone in verse 4, those who are not purifying themselves, those who have not placed their hope in God, those who have not been made children of God, and John describes them as all who are do doing sin. It's sort of a more literal way to say what he says here. All who are doing sin. He's using a participle here. And just as when we use a participle and we say like, I am doing, you are doing, they are doing, that the, the, what that's conveying there is a continual action, right? And so he's not so much focusing on a specific act here as a way of living, okay? So everyone who is doing sinning, literally is what he says. The New American Standard uses the phrase practices sin to try to convey the idea here, not practice in the sense of trying to get better at something, but practice in the sense of doing it. Like you talk about someone who practices medicine. Now, the ESV uses the expression, makes a practice of sinning, which perhaps comes closest to conveying the idea here. It's talking about a lifestyle, in other words. Describing all those for whom sinning is their way of life. Now, we, we should probably note that, that John is not saying that believers never sin. This passage has been used by some groups to, to teach that as a Christian you can get to some higher level where you never sin anymore. That's not biblical. And in fact, that would contradict what John's already said in his letter, right? He's assumed that Christians still sin on occasion because he said, be quick to confess that sin. So he's not saying that there's this group over here that never sins and there's this group over here that does sin. He's saying that there are two lifestyles, there are two orientations of thought here. Now, now in a real sense, we're all born in this group in verse 4. Right? That, that's our natural state. David says in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. That the natural condition of human beings is an inclination to do their own will, to be, to have that inward focus that's seeking self-satisfaction. So this ongoing pattern of sin is what he's talking about here, and he's defining that notice as lawlessness. Lawlessness this is the only term kind of uses this phrase, I think. But it's clear what he's trying to, to remind us of. That the essence of sin is not found in its bad effects. Now, there are many terrible effects of sin in our lives and in the lives of others. Okay? 
there are many ways in which sin harms the fabric of human society. But John's saying, now that the true essence of sin is that it disregards the law of God. God's law communicates, reflects, portrays his righteousness. And so a pattern of sinning against that is a pattern of lawlessness. It sort of reminds you, doesn't it, of the use of the word antichrist, against Christ. This is this conveys the idea of being against the law. They want to make a law of themselves. Right? I want to do what is right in my own eyes. I, I want to follow the impulses of my own heart. That's what he's describing here, is a lifestyle. Human beings are quick to label as wrong anything that has a negative effect on them. John's saying we've got to have a lot more mature understanding of what sin is. Now notice, too, that in saying that the essence of sin is lawlessness, he's acknowledging that God's law has authority over all people. And that, of course, would include us as, as, as Christians. That's the standard of purity that was in verse 3 there. He, everyone who thus hopes in himself, purifies himself as he is pure. So his law conveys that purity. And the believer is walking in a way that, that grows in that purity. Now in verse 5, John turns our, heart, our hearts and our minds here to Jesus. So thinking about the reality of what sin is and a pattern, a lifestyle of sin, you know that he, that is Jesus, appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, now what he's doing here is trying to help us see in this passage that if you are in Christ, you've been given a new identity. An identity that is not tied up in practicing sin, in a lifestyle of sin, but an identity that is tied up in practicing righteousness and growing in righteousness. And so he reminds us of that here by saying that Christ came, the sinless one, to take away sins. So how can, how can a right view of the Christian life be one that tolerates sin? If I'm in Christ, then I should be the enemy of sin as he is the enemy of sin. He goes on later to say that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and corrupting human beings and bringing condemnation upon them. And, and so you too then, having been brought into Christ, having been born again by the work of the Holy Spirit in you, you've been given a new identity in him. So you oppose sin as he opposes sin, because you have the Spirit at work in you. Hebrews puts it this way, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. You, you hear that purification process being described here. Moving away from those dead works, those works that are expressions of the sinful human nature, to serve the living God. 
Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, that is Jesus' death, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not earthly temples, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He who has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so John's saying, for the believer, there is a lifestyle of growing in righteousness. That's what he's emphasizing throughout this whole text. There are those in deceivers in the church of that day, evidently, who were who downplaying sin on the one hand, and on the other hand, saying that they'd risen above sin. And John is, is speaking against that. Uh, he's saying, your identity is in Christ. And as you have your identity in Christ, live in a way that reflects his identity. Uh, he goes on then to, to use the imagery of being born again, being born of God in verse 9. God has sovereignly acted to bring to life those who had no life in themselves. Uh, in fact, in John 9, in verse 9, John uses even a, an unusual word picture here of God's seed. The word here literally is sperm, being in, permanently implanted into those born of God. In today's language, we might use the, the image of DNA. And the Holy Spirit breathes spiritual life into sinners. It's like he gives them his DNA, which enables them to overcome sin. To put this in theological terms, we would say you've been justified by God. You've been declared righteous because Christ died for your sins and you're clothed in his righteousness. But now you're being sanctified. You're growing in righteousness. And one day you will be glorified. You will be confirmed in righteousness. So one excellent commentator on this this passage from years ago says, what we need to do is, is stop looking at our past, stop focusing on our sins, and look toward our calling. You are called to ultimate sinlessness. There will be a day when Christ presents you before the Father, which, in which it can be said of you, you cannot sin. You will not sin. Uh, isn't that a wonderful thing to long for? Think of all the heartache that comes into our lives before sin. It's hard even to imagine being in that state, but that's your state. So John is saying, in effect here, live in accordance with your destination. If your destination is the joy of being perfectly conformed to the image of God, being transformed from the inside out, in fact, to the image of Christ, if that's your destiny, then begin living that out now. Begin living that out now. You are not in the flesh, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
you've been set free from that aspect. Not that you're perfect again, not that you never sin, but you are no longer a slave of that. Remember Jesus says to the Pharisees, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And they, they get their hackles up and say, we've never been slaves of anyone. And Jesus says, if you're living as a slave of sin, if you're practicing sinlessness, he uses some of the same language that John does here, then you're a slave of sin and you need to be set free. The Christian has been set free from sin. You have, as a believer, when you've been born again, you have for the first time in your life the ability not to sin. Before you're born again, all you could do is sin. Okay, your, your best works were sin because they were not done from a heart that was alive to God. But once you've been born again, you have a freedom not to sin. That's what John wants for you here. Remember he said back in the first chapter, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of, his, of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. Do you see again that combination of the of dealing with a negative confession, receiving forgiveness, and living in the positive, living in obedience to God. Again, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In a way, John is... John's point in this letter is to say, I want you to live up to your calling. I want you to, to live up to be who you have been made to be in Christ. What's reflected in your life in the ordinary day at home, at work, at school, in the community? Which of these two lifestyles is it that, that you see? Your choice is evidence of desire for self-fulfillment, self-esteem, self-satisfaction. God offers you, in Jesus Christ, a far more positive model, doesn't he? You repent of your sins and come to know him. To follow Christ is to know that your identity is in Christ and that it is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. Is to have the promise that God will be glorified in you and that you will enter into his glory. That glory will never end. So, what can we call this lifestyle? The opposite of expressive individualism. Maybe we can call it expressive love. John's going to lead us into that topic next. Finding meaning and joy in the discovery and expression of the love of God. Finding grace and glory outside of oneself, having our gaze turned outward and upward to Him, and God and in relationship with Him and with His people. And that will be transforming not only for us, but for our effect on the world on it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we long to 
to understand these things better than we do. So we pray that you would, you would help us to understand not just with our heads, but with our hearts, this teaching. That, that, you have, that you have given us by grace life in you, your own Holy Spirit, your love poured into our hearts so that we can experience life that, that is free and that is truly joyful and is headed for glory. I pray that that would be, that would be the orientation of our lives and that you would use that orientation then in us to enable us to live lives that reflect your love and grace toward us. Thank you, Lord, for, for that love, for bringing us to faith. And we pray, Lord, that you would extend, extend this kingdom in us and in others, that, that there would be those even today who would turn in faith to you, repenting of their sin, and find that joy that comes from being united by faith with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.